Part four, chapter four of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part four, chapter four operations october twenty to thirty one of the difficulties of our advance at this time is the fact that we are unable to shoot the bosch out of towns and villages because of the civilian population thus at denain the advance of the fourth canadian division was held up for some time on this account and it was not until the evening of october twenty that our men entered the town, and even then Bosch machine-gunners were still clinging to the eastern outskirts. This honor fell to the 10th Brigade, the 47th Battalion, Western Ontario, actually passing through the town together with the 4th Canadian machine-gunners. They met there a royal welcome. Never will men of the Canadian Corps forget Denain, the private in the ranks fared as well and was made as much one of the family as the officer. It is a humble little manufacturing town, with nothing about it of beauty or architectural excellence. Its streets are squalid and dirty, the country dull and flat, relieved only by the pyramid-like slag heaps. We were to visit many fine places, and live in fat quarters from Mons on to the palaces of Bonn, with a bathtub for each soldier. But in all this clustered memory, no jewel shines so bright, so constant, and with such a hidden fire as this of the kind folk of Denain. They struck no medals, they named no public squares in our honor, but they gave us their whole heart and with it their uttermost possession, Denain, grimy little town of shining and cherished memory. From the blighted village of Louvard, Canadian Corps headquarters moved into comfortable billets, and in Denain we enjoyed, after many weeks, the luxury of clean linen and all the ameliorations of civilization. Our billet was in the modest home of a widowed lady in the boulevard Caramon. The story of the family was very simple. The eldest son, a priest, had joined the army at the opening of the war and was somewhere in the Vosges, the second son on another front. In those days this lady had kept house with her youngest son, John, and two daughters, Louise, now aged sixteen, and Yvonne, aged thirteen. German officers coming and going continually had been billeted upon them. But we had no converse with them, said Madame Lesage. There were their rooms, clean and sweet for the dirty fellows. But in those four years, as they tramped day by day up and down stairs, we had nothing to say to them. Once only Louise here slapped the face of one of them. Yes, our little Louise is of a courage. Here, you must know, was a hospital for English prisoners, 
broken down by toil and want, and a good physician of Denain devoted himself entirely to their aid and comfort. Little as the people here had themselves, they smuggled food to these poor men, and our Louise, too, slipping behind the back of a sentry, took them little packets. Any they caught, they whipped or imprisoned, and threatened to kill, and our Jean, too. "'John, did we not tell you about our beloved John, monsieur?' burst in little Yvonne. "'He was going to l'école militaire when war broke out, to become an officier, "'and we lied about his age when they registered us all. "'But last year a neighbor, a despicable traitor, "'told the Bosch he was eighteen and training for a soldier. "'So they took him away. "'They took him away, and we have never heard.' They had had no word of any of them for weeks and weeks, no word at all of Jean. These people were reduced to the barest necessities of life, and with our coming, conditions for a time were even worse, for the Spanish relief ceased, and it was some time before we could organize anything beyond the rations of the army. In four years they had not tasted sugar. In this beautiful little menage, one blushed continually to find that to be a Canadian was of necessity to be also a hero, a soldier of transcendent qualities, for in Denain, long before our coming, the renown and fame of the Canadian Corps had gone before. Many a jolly Canadian soldier no doubt recounted here to a breathless household how he too had stormed Vimy Ridge and taken part in the victories of Amiens and Cambrai. The Vimy Ridge tradition, in fact, was to be expected here, for Denain and Linz are situate on the same coal scene and have a community of interest. Certainly there was nothing artificial or put on about this high renown into which we had so unexpectedly entered. It was a thing of growth and root. We luxuriated in it and nowhere we went thereafter had for us quite the same exotic warmth of welcome. Indeed, we were to visit prosperous communities, talk with well-informed people, and find to our sad disappointment they were completely ignorant on the great subject of the Canadian Corps. It is true we left them in better case. All this found fitting expression in a solemn service of thanksgiving celebrated one Sunday in the old church, to which Canadian soldiers were specially invited, and when a memorial service was held for the Canadian dead who had fallen, the corps commander, the Prince of Wales, Sir David Watson, commander of the 4th Canadian Division, which captured the town, and his staff were present. One was talking many months after with a demobilized soldier. Take it all in, he said. There was no place like Denain. I never slept in so good a bed before or since. And the woman of the house insisted on cleaning my boots. We are shortly to move on to Valenciennes, where, in an imposing mansion, one's billet was cheerless. No clean sheets, no bright fire none of those amenities to which one had become so quickly accustomed. From there, in due course, we moved to Mons, to another mansion, where the Chatelaine, 
an aged Belgian lady, greets us by saying that the German officers who had just left were true gentlemen, and she hoped we should behave as well. And again, no clean sheets, no brisk fire. Happily, in those days, a reasonable excuse presents itself to return to Denain, to Madame and Louise and Yvonne. One knocks at the familiar door, and Yvonne rushes out. Oh, monsieur, monsieur, how splendid! You are just in time to see our big brother, who has arrived this day on leave, and we have had a letter from our Jean, who is well and will soon be home. We shake hands with a bearded giant in light blue. He thanks us again and again. For what? We cannot tell. For perhaps accepting so gracefully the kindness poured upon us. But it is fine to hear that this veteran of France also has the very highest opinion of Le Corps Canadien, has heard of its exploits in the far Vosges. Somewhere in Belgium a little letter overtakes us from Yvonne. They are all united again after four years. What happiness! From Denan on the fighting stiffened, and as we were well out in front of troops on either flank, we advanced cautiously, pushing ahead only when ground could be gained with a minimum of casualties. Nevertheless, it was our object to prevent the enemy getting away at leisure and we trod closely on his heels, our outposts feeling their way along and driving in his rear guards. Thus his main body was never more than four to six hours ahead, and we prevented him wrecking the country in his passage, though it was systematically sacked and looted, while the dirt and stench he left behind him were indescribable. In dealing with enemy posts, a return to some of the practice of trench warfare obtained. Stokes guns, with a range of 500 yards, whose day was regarded as done once we forsook a warfare of positions, now came into play, and even more effective were the Newton mortars, with a range of 1,200 yards. Bits of cover were utilized to bring these up within range of the enemy machine-gun nests, and at the first round, the Bosch gunners had their wind up and got off. Very effective work was done with these guns mounted in armored cars, of which a supply from Brutonel's brigade had been divided among the brigades and were placed in attack directly under battalion commanders. They were thus enabled to circulate on various roads and outflank small machine-gun nests and positions, that had been holding up the infantry, causing considerable casualties to the enemy and materially assisting the advance. This open warfare through a rolling country provided a magnificent training for our troops, who fast closed up the scars of recent fighting and soon presented a fresh and smart appearance. They were in excellent spirits the only grievance being the ever-lengthening distance from the leave base, a real hardship for the men whose turn it was. Except for units actually in the line, and these were but few, for our brigades attacked at the most on a two-battalion front, while the 11th Brigade in particular 
Brigadier General Ondlem, advanced all the way from the Canal du Nord to Valenciennes and beyond on a one-battalion front. The nature of the present operations rather resembled peacetime maneuvers than the battle tactics to which our troops had been habituated. On October 20, the 2nd Canadian Division went back to rest, the 4th Canadian Division having established contact at Denain with the 51st Division, advancing from the south on the right bank of the Scheldt. On this date, still further progress was made, the 1st Canadian Division capturing Asnon and Valers, and the 4th Canadian Division, Avalui, this village being taken by the 54th Battalion of the Kootenay. By October 21, the 1st Canadian Division had penetrated the Foray de Vicoigne to the road leading from Valenciennes northwest to Saint Armand, while the 4th Canadian Division had captured the following villages Vavrechain, Rouveny, and Prouvy by units of the 10th Brigade, and Bellard, Arian, and Aubry by the 11th Brigade with the 87th Battalion, Grenadier Guards of Montreal. Its outpost line was on the western outskirts of La Sentinelle and Petite Foray. On October 22, the 1st Canadian Division, which had battled its way forward without a halt from northeast of Arras on October 6, was relieved by the 3rd Canadian Division. Next day, we had reached a line along the Scheldt Canal to the Faubourg de Paris, thence along the canal to Fresnes, thence to Odom, fronting on the Scheldt opposite Condé. The advance was continued with the 4th Canadian Division on the right and the 3rd Canadian Division on the left, the 10th Brigade being on our extreme right along the left bank of the Scheldt, south of which was the area of the 22nd Corps. On the left of the 10th was the 11th Brigade, working on a line drawn from just north of Denain through Anzin, the northwestern suburb of Valenciennes. Left again was the 9th Brigade, and beyond them the 7th Brigade, working along the northern boundary of the Corps, which ran from Douai to the northern fringe of the Foray de Rasmus, some 14,000 yards north of Valenciennes. North of us was the 8th Corps, Everywhere civilians were released, and we did what was possible to relieve their necessities. It was a triumphal progress. Their joy and contempt of danger were extravagant, and in a country that so far had escaped the ravages of war, they appeared to have no idea of the perils wherein they moved. Thus, when the 75th Battalion of Toronto passed through Anzine into the village of Beauvrage, north of Valenciennes, the civilians brought them coffee, regardless of the heavy machine-gun fire from the far side of the Scheldt. An old peasant was serving coffee to two of our men when a shell burst in his backyard. They immediately died for the cellar, crying, Au cave, monsieur, au cave! But, with shattered glass around him, he proceeded methodically to make up his charcoal fire. The enemy indeed kept up a heavy fire all along the canal, 
and paid special attention to our exposed communications, a number of our men, and even the 11th Brigade staff being badly gassed. Emaciated though they were, the Frenchmen of military age thus repatriated hurried off to enlist. Pitiable was the condition of British prisoners, several of whom were now released. The Bosch made it a crime for the peasantry to give them so much as a cup of water, and set to heavy work in their weakened condition. Most of them were little better than skeletons. A Canadian trooper of the Fort Garry Horse of Winnipeg, captured in November 1917, when his squadron was surrounded south of Cambrai, and who now made good his escape from Valenciennes, weighed only 86 pounds, his proper weight being 160 pounds. He said the Bosch admitted they were beaten, and that they were going back to Germany. The condition of captured German horses showed the straits to which they were reduced. The operations of this period are described by Sir Arthur Currie as follows. Quote, on October 19, the advance was continued on the whole Corps front, nearly 40 towns and villages being wrested from the enemy, including the large town of Denain. The 22nd Corps, advancing on our right from the south, gained touch with the 4th Canadian Division just east of Denain on the evening of October 19, pinching out the 2nd Canadian Division, which was then concentrated in the Aubergy Corps area, where good billets were available. In spite of bad weather and increased resistance, more ground was gained on October 20, and the villages of Asnon, Les Faux, Valère, and Avalui, with a large population, were freed. During the day, resistance had stiffened all along the line. The ground over which we were advancing was very flat, and there was no tactical advantage to be gained by pushing forward and a further advance would also increase the difficulties of supply. In addition, on the left, the Eighth Corps had not been able to cope with the supply question and had not advanced in conformity with our progress. In view of these considerations, orders were issued that divisions were to maintain touch with the enemy without becoming involved in heavy fighting. For a time on October 20, the 4th Canadian Division was held up just east of Denain by machine gun and artillery fire, and it was not until late in the afternoon that our troops could make progress there. Continuing the advance on October 21, a footing was gained in the Foray de Vicoagne, and the following villages were captured. Arimbert, Boissy, Erin, Rouvigne, Aubry, Petite Foray, Onzine, Prouvy, Belin, and Vavrechain. As on the previous day, all these villages contained civilians, who subsequently suffered considerably from deliberate hostile shelling. The 1st Canadian Division had now been in the line for two weeks without having an opportunity to rest and refit since the hard-fought battle of the Canal du Nord and orders were issued for its relief by the 3rd Canadian Division. At dawn on October 22, in order that touch with the enemy be maintained, the 1st Canadian Division pushed forward. 
following closely the third canadian division passed through the first canadian division during the forenoon on the left brigade front about nine a m on the line of the st armand rasmus road and on the right about noon on the line of the st armand rasmus railway the foray de vicoigne having been cleared of the enemy on relief the first canadian division came into rest billets in the saman pecancourt masny area the third and fourth canadian divisions pushed on during october twenty two and by nightfall trith saint leger la vignoble la sentinelle vas la Vauvrage, Rouet, and practically the whole of the large forest of Rasmus were in our hands. On the left brigade front of the 4th Canadian Division, the Scheldt Canal had been reached in places. A very large area northeast of Valenciennes and a smaller area to the southwest had been flooded, and to the west of the city the canal itself provided a serious obstacle. To the southwest, beyond the flooded area, Montreuil and the Famar Ridge made a natural line of defense. The 22nd Corps on our right had been held up along the Ecaillon River, and the 8th Corps on our left had not been able to make any considerable advance, chiefly owing to supply difficulties, and were still some distance behind us. The divisions continued to push forward in the face of steadily increasing opposition, and by October 25 had reached the canal and the western edge of the inundated area along the whole corps front. Our troops had had a very arduous pursuit, and the railhead for supplies and ammunition was still very far to the rear. It was therefore decided that we should make good the west bank of the canal and stand fast until the flanking corps had made progress attempts to cross the canal proved that the enemy was holding in strength a naturally strong position and it was ordered that no crossing in force would be attempted without reference to corps headquarters the engineers established dumps of material well forward on selected sites so that the bridges necessary to cross the canal on the resumption of our advance, could be constructed without delay. A glance at the map will show that the Scheldt Canal, after passing Denain, takes a turn of four or five thousand yards southeast, and then at the village of Tiant, on its south bank, where the Ecaillon River joins the canal, turns again northeast, to where some seven or eight thousand yards lower down it skirts the west flank of valenciennes thence it continues in a generally northeasterly direction some thirteen or fourteen thousand yards to conde which is but two or three miles from the belgian border at conde the scheldt swings off at right angles to the northwest contained within this right angle is the foray d'erasmus through which our troops had penetrated they were therefore several miles beyond Valenciennes on the left or north bank of the Scheldt. The enemy had flooded the canal from Conde, raising the waters not only as far as the city itself, but a considerable distance west of it, halfway to Tion. 
some of our troops of the 10th Brigade, of an adventurous spirit, sought to enter Valenciennes from the south by crossing this inundated area by boat, but their craft was promptly riddled by machine-gun bullets, and they had difficulty in making the shore again. So far, therefore, as the Canadian Corps in its present area was concerned, no attack on Valenciennes was feasible. Many civilians were known to be still in the city, and so we could not shell the enemy out, quite apart from the desire not to damage a city still intact. On the other hand, the Bosch made full use of this immunity by establishing batteries of artillery and machine guns at every point of vantage and maintaining on our lines a continual harassing fire. It was obvious that until the Corps on our right advanced along the south bank of the Scheldt, we could only mark time. Happily, the weather had taken a turn for the better. We luxuriated in a belated Indian summer, squaw summer as they call it in the West. The Corps commander explains the situation and disposition as follows, quote, It had become apparent that unless the enemy withdrew, Valenciennes could only be taken from the south. The 22nd Corps on the right had meanwhile succeeded in crossing the Echeon River after a hard fight, and captured the Famar Ridge. They had, however, been unable to take Montreuil, which commanded Valenciennes from the south. On October 27, the First Army commander outlined the plan for operations to be carried out in conjunction with attacks on a large scale by the Third and Fourth Armies to the south, as follows. Item A the capture of Montreuil and Aulnois to be carried out by the 22nd Corps on the morning of October 28. Item B, the capture of the high ground overlooking Valenciennes from the south to be carried out by the Canadian Corps on a subsequent date, probably October 30. Item C, the capture of the high ground east of Valenciennes to be carried out after item B above probably on November 1. Valenciennes would thus be outflanked from the south. The Canadian Corps would take over, probably on the night of October 28 to 29. The left brigade frontage of the 22nd Corps, parentheses approximately 2,500 yards, close parentheses, in order to carry out phase item B and item C of this operation, the above attacks were to be carried out simultaneously with the attacks of the Third and Fourth Armies. In accordance with the above, instructions were issued to the Third Canadian Division to take over the frontage of the left brigade of the Fourth Canadian Division. The Fourth Canadian Division was, in turn, ordered to relieve the left brigade of the 22nd Corps, 51st Division, close parentheses both side slips to take place on the night of October 28 to 29, subsequent to the capture of Montreuil by the 22nd Corps. The attack of the 51st Division on Montreuil on October 28 was not successful. In the first rush, the troops succeeded in gaining a foothold on the objective, but were subsequently driven out by repeated counterattacks. In view of this, the relief of the left brigade of that division by the 4th Canadian Division 
was postponed. During the night of October 28 to 29, however, the 3rd Canadian Division relieved the left brigade of the 4th Canadian Division. During the month of October, we had captured 2,950 prisoners, 136 guns, and 467 machine guns, 42 trench mortars, 6 anti-tank rifles, 6 locomotives, and other materiel and rolling stock. End of Part 4, Chapter 4 Recording by James O'Connor Randolph, Massachusetts, January 2011